Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Get the champagne ready. The NBA Finals are here. Welcome to the NBA Finals. Let's raise our glasses and our rings to the two phenomenal teams left standing. My goodness! Here's the high-stakes action to thrilling moments we can't miss. He ties the game at the buzzer. And to crowning our next champion. Here's a toast to the NBA Finals. The 2024 NBA Finals presented by YouTube TV continue on ABC. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday, we release these special episodes that we're calling Classic Risk Singles. Each of these episodes features just one story from our earlier years. If you're new to Risk, you should know that the podcast can be very uncensored. This week, a story that Dario DiBattista first shared on the podcast in January of 2017. Here's Dario now with a story we call One Bullet. I joined the Marines in peacetime. I graduated boot camp on August 24th, 2001. If I'm being honest with you, I probably would have not joined the Marines after September 11th, 2001. Because uh, the Marines are a warfighting force. They pride themselves as being one of the baddest branches of the military. And when you're in the Marines, they will put you in the front lines and you'll be in the dangerous areas. And that's your expectation. getting ready to train, uh, one of our staff sergeants asked, uh, who is afraid? And of course, nobody raised their hand. I said, who's not afraid? And of course, nobody raised their hand. He's like, good. You're supposed to be scared. If you're not scared, you're a crazy motherfucker, and I don't want you coming with me. A lot of times, people ask if I've ever killed anybody, which is... It's an egregious question to ask somebody. Why would you, why would you do that? <laughs> if I did kill somebody, do you think I want to talk about it? Uh, if I didn't kill anybody, my experience is not worth anything. All of a sudden, um, yeah, just it's this weird, gross oversimplification of what we do and and how we did it and what the job was. Uh, it's about nation building, it's about stability, it's about creating peace and security and a functioning government for people, not just going around 
shooting people. You know, there's a boredom's war. You can be in a house going room to room, tense combat that feels like hours, but it's only about 10 minutes. And then you might sit around for four hours, literally. Just this manic bipolar transition that just really fucks you up. Everybody who goes through a war zone comes home and at least for a time, they're disturbed. A car's tailpipe might set you off. Uh, You might be jittery when you're in a crowd. If you don't have these symptoms, you're crazy. You're a sociopath. There's no other way to describe it. (laughs) Having a heightened sense of being able to transition quickly from placid, calm, confident to a professional killer instinct at a snap and protects you. It's a good skill. But it's hard to unlearn. It's hard to come home and be calm and poised and not equate everything to life or death. It's hard to come home and sit with your back to a wall at a restaurant not looking who's coming in, who's going out. But that high you get, that rock-solid hard-on from coming home and being alive is unlike anything I could ever describe. (laughs) But it doesn't last long because people don't understand where you've come from. They won't take the time to consider what you've done. They treat it like this sacred saint, unapproachable experience, and uh, nobody calls you out for drinking too much. Nobody calls you out for being angry and irritable. Nobody calls you out for your violent mood swings that once protected you, and now they now they make you a social pariah. When I was overseas, I, I was in love. I had met somebody before I left. Even though I served in combat, even though I did two tours, I was a Marine Reservist, which meant I was basically a civilian college student and also a warfighter at the same time. I'd go from Chile's to places like Fallujah. Uh, I'd go from the Syrian border of Iraq to a community college. I met a young woman before I left. She was a hostess at the restaurant where I worked at. She was sweet. She'd always give me the good tables, even though I didn't ask, you know, or the people she followed would tip really well. We would get food to go. We'd go back to my house. And I was 19, so I'd put on some jazz music and a candle, and I thought that was romantic. And uh, she would brush her teeth when we were done, which I just felt was so cool, just so honest, so open. Like, yeah, okay. (laughs) Let's go mess around. Like, okay, shit. (laughs) I'm done with that. Spent my entire last day with her. She came with me on all my errands, all my activities. A lot of that meant her sitting in a car on a military base, just waiting for me to get gear, receive gear, collect stuff. And um, I held her. I held her that night. That was it. There's not a lot to say, but I did tell her that uh, she should live her life and uh, forget about me. But she didn't. She reached out to my sister, who she found online, and got my address before anybody else got my address somehow, and she wrote me every single day. And she marked the envelopes with lipstick. She drew me paintings of 
green dress uniforms and swords. And then she would always sign her name with the nickname I gave her, Cinnamon Girl. Which I thought was pretty smart, right? I used to be a drummer back then. She used to love that I drummed. And uh, there's a lyric in the song. The drummer relaxes and waits between shows for his Cinnamon Girl. So I wanted to be with her more than anything. But sometimes I would say, hey, let's go out as friends. I would push her away, uh, flipping from I love you, I, let's talk about our future one day, to not talking to her for days, um, to not wanting to hang out with her family. Uh, her sister was dating a Marine at the time, and uh, I don't know why, I just didn't want to be around another Marine. I didn't want to hang out with her family and him. Um, you know, uh, a symptom of PTSD is avoidance not wanting to be around things that remind you of um, bad experiences. I didn't know what, how to explain it, but I knew I was not right. I knew that I felt off. And again, I didn't want to involve her in that part of my life. I slowly began drinking a lot. I slowly began giving less of a shit. And I slowly found myself being angry, unable to control my emotions, <laughs> and just oscillating between extremes, just total jubilation to depression. Uh, I found out about a month after I came home, one of the Marines I served with who stayed behind was killed by a suicide bomber. I threw my phone against the wall, exploding the parts. Another one of my friends was killed later, my friend Mike. His helicopter crashed. Last time I saw him, he just finished infantry training. And uh, I traced my finger on his PFC mark. It's a chevron that goes on the shoulder. And I was proud of him. His funeral was a closed casket funeral. And uh, me and a friend of his, we, we just drank, we just drank a lot. One late night, shitty night like any other, a lot of Red Bulls and vodkas, heart racing, mind racing. I like that drink because it just made me feel really fucked up. <laughs> and I saw a photo of her. She's a photographer. She's well versed in Photoshop. So it's stunning. It's, it's beautiful. All blemishes removed. Her eyes, her blue eyes, accented. And her hair, really red hair, really red, bold, scarlet hair. When I had come home originally, she had dyed her hair back to blonde. And after we broke up, she kept it that way. And that was red again. I felt like she did it because she knew I'd see it. She knew it was a way to passive aggressively give me a finger. Fuck you, dude. I just wanted things to be right. I wanted things to be back to normal. Because everything sucks. And I struggle through my day to day 
But this is the one thing that I think could be a savior. Could get me right again. Could make me feel like I used to feel. And she wouldn't give me that, but I, I, I didn't deserve it because I was the one who had fucked shit up. And I felt about my daily depression, drinking so much, trying not to wake up, but somehow always being there. And the following day, putting whatever fragments of myself I had together to go to a restaurant, to smile, to be polite. Hey chief, will you get me a Coke? Fuck yourself, I'm not a chief. I'm a Lance Corporal in the Marines, don't patronize me. And they would always play our song on the rafters. Cinnamon Girl. Every night. I'd get in fights with my coworkers, and I'd be put in the office a lot. The only reason I had a job is because they took pity on me. The young crazy vet, just come home. We'd go out and we'd drink again, and I would drink, and I did not want to think about her. But I would only talk to the girls who reminded me of her, the ones that looked like her. Because that was my marker. It was my market at home, and she didn't want me, and I did not, I did not see a redemption anymore. I bought a rifle, and I bought one bullet, but I knew that bullet was never for home defense. It was for me. And I closed the door to my room, and I sat on my bed, and I loaded a round into the chamber, and I stared. And your bones feel hard and numb. And time felt like it was not moving at all. But all I could see at the end of the barrel was my mom, my mom's face. And I thought about what she would look like at my funeral. <laughs> she used to say, Dario, if you ever get captured, I'm, I'm gonna come over there and I'm gonna, I'm gonna go rescue you. <laughs> She's old and like four foot 11. What a ridiculous thing to say. And she said, we'll get you, we'll get you back. If you died, I'm gonna bury you with a sword. I wasn't a corporal, I didn't raid a sword, but she wanted to give me a sword because she was proud of me. I saw Mike's mom at his funeral, and I, I, I didn't know her, I had never met her before that day. And it's cliche, but they say the eyes are a window to the soul, and when you look into the eyes of a mother who has just lost her son, there is a vacancy that is painful to look at. And because of that darkness, I don't feel is ever going to be replaced, because why should it? What an awful, awful experience.
There's no lesson in that. There's no go live your life better. There's no keep doing the mission to honor him. And I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it to my mom. I still wanted to die, but I wasn't going to do it myself, so I volunteered for war again. And even though I was not making out with anybody, I got sick with mono. And uh, you can't go fight a war with mono because you're fatigued and you can't stay focused and your spleen can explode. I swear to you, if I had a broken leg, I would have gone. If I had pneumonia, I would have gone. I was suicidal, but I didn't want to get anybody else killed. So uh, I stayed behind. The guys who went in my stead um, got really fucked up. <laughs> One of them lost a leg. One of them wound up dying later, got shot in the neck. Our officer in charge got shot in the face. Somebody hit him in the small space between the helmet and the neck guard of a flak vest rupturing the front of his face destroying his jaw I saw him at a military hospital on the Marine Corps birthday he didn't have a face it was just a tongue and his sister would dutifully suction every so often and he would write with a pen and paper this place is busy some point I just got tired of feeling like shit feeling awful feeling suffocated by depression by sadness by this inability to reclaim my life get back to who I thought I could be maybe become who I wanted to be I realized at some point you just gotta unfuck yourself. So I went to college in Connecticut, having not known anybody in Connecticut, and uh, thankfully I found some people who encouraged me to write, and I started writing. And uh, I've learned you have to control your story or your story controls you. I still keep the bullet. It's in a jar of things that make up my life. And there is keepsakes from every job I've ever worked. A note a girl gave me in high school. She wrote, keep this forever, so I did. My old class rang. My old dog tags wrapped around tape so they didn't clink together while on patrol. A map of the Appalachian Trail. Other secret things. I want to show this jar to the woman that I will marry one day. I will want to show her how important my life is when measured against the bullet. People might not challenge you. They'll say, oh, you've been to war. They've done tough stuff. But you still got to make that choice for you. Because if you find yourself like I did, staring down a barrel, that's not good for you or anybody else.
because if you kill yourself at home, it still counts for the enemy. It's a 6,000 mile sniper shot. The difference is it came from your own gun. That's all for this week's Classic Risk Singles episode. Now, don't miss out on our regular full-length episodes. There's a brand new one every Tuesday. And everything you might want to know about us is at risk-show.com.